You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. All right, if you have a Bible, join me in Acts chapter 16. (laughs) Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, This uh, Sunday is a bit of a... um, uh, a one offer in the sense that uh, normally we begin a, a series at the beginning of the school year um, for um, uh, basically one to help remind us as the church who are we, what are we about, what do we believe, how are we structured, that kind of thing. And then also just to help new people that are showing up because that's always the, the case every school year. And um, so we decided to wait a week while uh, we still get some more people trickling in um, for that. Um, and then we also just finished our, our summer series. So we have this, this one Sunday. And as I was thinking about it, um, thinking about the nature of uh, us as a, as a church and our heart and desire to see the gospel uh, transform the people that we know. Um, our desire as um, Galena Bible Church, our, hopefully our just desire as believers, is regardless of what context we live in, uh, whether it's huge, sprawling metropolitan space or a tiny village or, um, you know, uh, intercontinental uh, connections or uh, multi-ethnic or whatever it is, um, that regardless of where we find ourselves, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true for everyone and it is needed for everyone, including us. And so the question that we, I want to ask us this morning is, how is it that we change the heart uh, of a village? How is it that we see the gospel change the people uh, that we're encountered at? And one of my favorite passages of scripture that paints a picture of what it looks like to physically actually see the gospel change um, uh, a, a village, a community, uh, a culture in sweeping ways is the story of the planting of the church in Philippi. Um, and if you've been around Galena Bible Church long enough, you'll know that this is one of my favorite stories. It's one of my favorite pictures of what it looks like uh, for multi ethnic, multi generational uh, engagement of the gospel to all kinds of people. And it begins in the book of Acts uh, in chapter uh, uh, 16, starting in verse 10. Paul has had a vision of a man from Macedonia, uh, which is a regional place. It's not one specific place. Uh, and all he gets is this, Im- this vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And in verse 10 it says, when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Regardless of how it is that you came about being in Galena, whether this is a place that you were born, whether this is a place that you've been a long time, or whether this is a place that you've been uh, in a very short amount of time, God has called you to be to this place. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, He has called you here in such a way where the gospel of Jesus Christ is communicated through your life. So whether you're working in the dorms, whether you're just living in the community, uh, whether you are working with the, uh, uh, any other entity in the city, this same call uh, is the call that God has for you. You are an answer to prayer, whether you know it or not. That We have been praying that God would bring people uh, who have a heart and desire to see gospel, tra- gospel transformation happen to people around them. In verse 10 it says, When they had seen the vision, immediately they sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel uh, to them. Uh, and they go in, and they putting out, from this, uh, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. 
Now, there are details that come out of this passage of Scripture that I think are significant for us, uh, that are very easy to pass over when you're reading over um, narrative like this. It gives little bits of information because we're not from there. We don't have any perspective of some of these things. And so we just read it and we're trying to you know, find out what was being taught or maybe something specifically about Jesus. But there are things about this that I think help us understand their culture and help us understand our culture. It describes this community of Philippi as a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and specifically it is referred to as a Roman colony. The reason that that's significant is that Philippi, out of all of the place names that are listed for us in the book of Acts, Philippi is the only one that is referred to as a Roman colony. And the reason that that's significant is a bunch of the places where Paul went were also Roman colonies, and they weren't referred to as Roman colonies. And so uh, uh, archaeologists have studied this and tried to figure out what is it about the Christian archaeologists have said, what is it about Philippi that made it so significant that uh, Luke, when he's recording this, says, hey, we need to pay attention to Philippi as specifically a Roman colony. And what they have found out about it is that Philippi was a a conquered land. It was a uh, land that the Romans had occupied through war. And once they had occupied it and they disbanded some of their military soldiers, part of their retirement package was that they were given land traces of Romans, or these Roman soldiers were given land traces of uh, of that territory. And so this town, this community, was founded by retired Roman soldiers... And everything about this community, even though it was not in Rome proper, was Roman in culture. Everything about it centered around the nature and perspective of Rome. To live in Philippi was to honor everything that what Rome stood for. It was to be proud of being Roman. To be uh, in that place was to be patriotic in every single way. And the reason that that's significant, the, the uh, bolsterous nature of the Romanness of Philippi, is that the vast majority of the people that lived in Philippi were not Roman. But the ones that were valued, the ones that were in charge, the ones that were powerful were. And so the vast majority of People that lived in Philippi had to answer to the Roman way, but they themselves were not Roman. Paul and Silas and uh, uh, and a few others probably come to uh, Philippi. And in verse 13 it says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began, began speaking to the women who had assembled there. If you're familiar with Paul's um, methodology of church mission engagement, he would go to a new community, and the first place that he would go to would be the Jewish synagogue. He was Jewish by ethnicity, uh, a trained Pharisee in that sense. He literally had a, a PhD in Old Testament studies, is what that meant. He had most of the Old Testament memorized. Uh, And so he would be seen as he stepped into a Jewish synagogue as a a very learned individual. He'd be able to speak truth that people would value. But when he so when he comes to Philippi, it says that they sought out to do that. But what they found was no synagogue, no clustering of, of Jewish people. You had to have at least 10 Jewish men to be able to constitute a uh, a synagogue, and apparently there wasn't even that in this place. Uh, what they did find was a group of women that were outside of the city, uh, kind of probably in a, a by the riverside, uh, probably in kind of a, a shaded area as they were gathered on the Sabbath day for prayer. This was uh, a group of individuals who had some understanding of Jewishness, of uh, of the Jewish God, and they wanted to gather together for prayer, and that was a, a cool and quiet place for them to be able to do that. And as Paul goes there, he meets with them, and he encounters the first type of person uh, that this story gives for us that I think is significant for us as we step into our roles and into our world. He meets a woman named Lydia. Let's see what it says about her. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, 
a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. There's a few things that we know about Lydia. Uh, First, it says that she was from Thyatira. This is uh, from um, uh, the the region of Turkey. Um, She is Asian in ethnicity uh, by definition of where she is from. So she is not even technically from this place. She's ethnically from a different place that is uh, planted in here. Uh, We know that she has a home here in Philippi. Uh, so, but we don't know that she is uh, necessarily always from this place. It says that she was a seller of purple fabrics. Now, again, that may not mean much to us, but this doesn't mean that she just worked at Joanne's Fabrics. This means that uh, her clientele bought yachts. That's the type of people that she worked with. These were very, very wealthy individuals that were her primary clientele. If her primary clientele was very wealthy individuals, we can make some deductions about Lydia herself that she herself was also very wealthy. by, we, we don't know if she was married. The scriptures do not tell us of that. But in the definition of her and of her life, it says that uh, once she had come to faith that they were brought to her house, which in a Roman colony, uh, if, it was, uh, if she was uh, married, that would not have been the way that you would have said that. You would have said she, was, she brought him to her husband's house. Uh, but... It doesn't list that, so we assume, again, that this is a a single Asian wealthy woman. Come, I almost picture this fashionista kind of personality that, you know, maybe has some business dealings in Paris and in Milan. And she takes her, you know, the, I'm pretty sure that the purple market wear uh, in Philippi was fairly narrow. So she had to, her business stretched uh, into, uh, onto multiple continents, probably. Um, she was a very well-to-do individual. And it describes her as a worshiper of God and the word that is that is uh, translated there for God is singular and it is the Greek word that is used specifically to describe the Jewish God. Remembering that the the Romans they were pantheists or uh, you know they they believed in uh, all kind of different gods and uh, and you know there was gods of this and gods of that and and everything was there but this woman who was. Uh, not related to the Jewish people ethnically. She had nothing that was there. She wasn't even Roman in nature, but there was something about her that had an understanding of the Jewish God. And not only that, it was defined that she was a worshiper of this God. So we have this wealthy, probably single, uh, ethnically diverse, religious woman And there's one other little snippet that this tells us about her. She was lost. She was lost. How do we know that? Because it wasn't until this moment that God did a work in her heart that transformed her from the inside out. This woman was the type of woman that if you encountered her on uh, on any given day, you would be impressed. Everything about her just reeked of awesome. Right, she knew people. She was affluent. She was, uh, you know, business savvy. She was a world traveler. Everything about her. She had tons of Instagram followers. Right, like everything about her was cool and neat and wonderful. And yet, until this moment, by the world standards, she had everything: spiritual, money, friends, travel. And yet she did not have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God had to do a work in her heart. It says, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I would dare venture that you will encounter Lydia's as you walk about our community. These are individuals who have it all together, right? They are actually financially pretty well off. They're spiritual. Their dance card is already full. 
They're, they're not looking for friends. They already got friends, right? Uh, they're the one that you're always hearing like, yeah, we just got back from this place or that place. We traveled to see this thing. We just thought it'd be kind of cool. And you're going like, man, I can't afford to do that, right? And we look at these individuals and we are in awe of them. When in reality, we ought to have the heart of Paul and the heart of Jesus to say, that's great, but there's one thing you lack, right? Lydia was the, 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 uh, the equivalent of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus with everything, religious and wealthy and affluent and everything, and yet God did something different in her than He did in the rich young ruler. God opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul. And the reality of this is that life transformation cannot happen in people who seemingly have it all together unless we are willing to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be very awkward for a lot of us. That's almost going to be a little bit scary for some of us. But if we want to see the heart of the village change... We have to see these individuals not as just prominent figures that we should be in awe of, but people who desperately need Jesus. And the incredible part about this is that when this woman came to faith in Jesus, it says in verse 15, and when she and her whole household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And then I love this. It says, and she prevailed upon them. In other words, you weren't going to tell Lydia no. The founding uh, uh, member of the church in Philippi was a spunky lady, and I look forward to getting to meet her one day. We ought to have eyes for the Lydias that God has around us. It looks like they have everything together, but the reality is they don't. And how do we bring the gospel to them? We need to be faithful to look for opportunities to communicate the hope of Jesus to them. They may not accept it. And the reality of this, we can't save any of them. Our job is to speak the truth in love in a way that uh, is understandable to them and pray that the Lord would open their heart to respond to the things that we have spoken to them. I think if, uh, if all the ministry that we ever did was to Lydia's, it would be a little bit like, um, it would be a little bit intimidating, I think. Uh, I think it's kind of like, you know, trying to, you know, how do you do church planting to celebrities? <laughs> you know, kind of, I don't know if there's a ministry that does that. That would, that would feel kind of weird, right? But the reality of us as we look about our community is that not everybody has it all together. And in fact, probably the majority of the people that we encounter on a day-to-day basis don't have it all together. The second type of person that Paul encounters, I think, is what we will encounter a little bit more of. It says in verse 16, And it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her uh, masters much profit by fortune-telling. And following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. The second person that we meet is just defined or described as a slave girl. We don't know a ton about this individual, um, but by the... um, uh, the words that are used here in the description of her, we make some assumptions about her. Uh, the assumption about her is the, the word that is used for girl in that slave girl is usually defined as somebody that is very young, uh, either in um, uh, pre-puberty or right at that mark. So 10, 11, 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. She is a young girl. Uh, She is a slave, and the the whole system of slavery that exists within the Roman world uh, was very highly regulated, uh, and it was a part of Roman culture. It was was an element of pride. It was an element of, uh, this is who we are as Romans. We have slaves, and the way that that worked, we don't know uh, how she got into this. She could have been born as a slave. 
uh, to parents that were slaves and then sold off. She could have been sold by her parents as a slave to pay off some debt that they have. We don't know how she got into it, but what we do know is that because she was a slave, there was no aspect of her life that belonged to her. The clothes on her back, the minutes of her day, the food that she ate, the breath in her lungs, none of it by government regulation belonged to her. Her life was owned by somebody else. And it says that she was, uh, the slave girl had a spirit of divination. Again, uh, for us in America, we think of the spirit world as kind of this woo kind of thing. Uh, realizing that the rest of the world doesn't feel that way today. Um, And in the ancient world, it was much the same as well. The word that is used here is, uh, is the same word that is used to describe the young girls that worked, uh, for, um, uh, in divination for the the purpose of, uh, future telling, fortune telling, uh, secrets telling, uh, these individuals would work themselves up to, into a, almost a frothy frenzy. Uh, they would utter things that people would then interpret as um, uh, uh, you know, good luck fortunes or bad luck fortunes. People would pay money to say, hey, I, I want to enter into this business venture. Is it going to go good or is it going to go poorly? And they would have this uh, young girl work herself up and she would make an utterance about it and they would say yes or no. Uh, And it was a great fortune for her. And the Bible describes that it was a a spirit, an unclean spirit uh, that uh, had her in this place. So not only was she owned from the outside by another person, from the inside she was owned by an evil uh, force. And it says that as they were going to the place of prayer, literally as they were in the engagement of missions, they were going to do their church planting work. They were meeting with Lydia for Bible studies and her household. They were doing discipleship and teaching the scriptures. As they were going day after day from one place to another place, meeting with people, this young girl would come out and follow them day after day after day. And she would say, cry out to anybody that is listening, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now look at that, look at that, what she says. Look at it very carefully and tell me, is there anything that she says that is wrong? No, in fact, it is surgically correct, explicitly correct. This is exactly what they're doing. Right? And yet, it has no help for her. These men are servants of the Most High God, proclaiming to you the way to be saved. And she continued doing this for many days. Is there anybody in your world? That their actions, their attitude, their beliefs, even maybe their physical appearance are dictated by someone else or something else. This is every addict you've ever met. This is every, every person that you've ever met that is struggling with some kind of identity crisis that the, the world is trying to tell them, this is who you are, and this is, you know, this is that person that uh, you're, you're going like, man, something seems off, and you begin to dig into their life, and it seems like their whole life is commanded by what uh, some adult in their life told them in the past of you're never going to amount to anything, you're, you're really just trash, and that commanded their life. It dictated their decisions. It informed the way that they behaved. Everything about it. Every time I think about this, I, I think about uh, back when I was in seminary in New Orleans, we would, in the evenings, uh, when I would take these 
uh, one to two week long mini master classes. In the evenings, we would go out and bring like sack lunches into the French Quarter to go uh, basically hang out with homeless folks that were living in the French Quarter. And there were kind of two types, I guess, if you will, of, of homeless folks that were in the French Quarter. There was what you would just kind of classically think of as the your homeless bum kind of individual. Mostly older individuals had a little bit of mental health stuff and they just kind of fit the, if you were to caricaturize what a homeless person looks like, that's what they were. But then there was another kind of group of homeless individuals and they called themselves gutter punks and they were much younger and they actually like were choosing to live this life. It was kind of a life goal. This is, this is how I want to live free. I want to push off society's bounds. I want to live this kind of way. And as we were interacting with these individuals, uh, many of whom had significant either mental health problems uh, or substance abuse problems, it was profoundly obvious as we were talking to them that many of them knew the scriptures. Some of them would pull out tracts that other people had given to them. And yet, it didn't seem like it did anything. And that's so frustrating for us because we just think, and I think this is one of the challenges that we have as a society, that society looks at the mental health crisis where we're at and the substance abuse crisis where we are at. And they say, well, if people just had more information, then that would help. So we have these education campaigns. And the reality of it is, is going, they know. They know. So how do, we, how do we see that changed? Well, it wasn't until Paul had enough that something different happened. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. I love that. And why was it that he was annoyed? Well, I, it doesn't say explicitly, but there's some elements of it. One... She was telling the truth, but she was saying it in such a way whereas it caricaturized them as apostles of God in a light that would lead people away from the truth of the gospel. Because to everybody else, when they thought most high God, they thought Jupiter. They didn't think the Lord God. And so, oh yeah, yeah, okay, those are just some religious fanatics and that's what they are and we can brush them off. And the craziness of this world looks at people who are telling the truth of the gospel and says, these guys are nuts. But I think there also is an element of this where he could not stand it any longer seeing what was going on with this young girl. Paul being greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. Radical transformation. But it took him stopping and injecting his life into this young girl's life. That's the only way that the issues of mental health and substance abuse actually ever change. Is if we actually step into the mess and say enough. They don't just need more information. They need people who are willing to stop and say enough. Enough. I won't enable this to happen anymore. The thing we need to know about that is it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy for us and it's going to be costly for us. The other thing that I think we need to understand, which I think is surgically important for us where we serve today, is that did this girl's life change? Yes. For the better, yeah, obviously she has Jesus. Did her circumstances change? Nope. She's still a slave girl in Rome. Specifically for all of us that love broken people, which is most of the people that we encounter. As we bring the hope of Jesus and we walk with them, it's one of the most frustrating things to realize that I can't change your circumstances. right? I can't change what home looks like for you. I can't change the dysfunction of mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or whoever it is that is. In your, I can't change it. But I can walk with you in this truth of Jesus. And the reality is, when we do that with people, other people will be offended by that. 
other people won't like it. It's the young native boy that I talked to a a couple years back who described his challenge of uh, coming to faith, being in this group of discipleship, and then going back home. And every one of his friends was like, what do you mean you don't drink anymore? What does it mean you don't party anymore? And literally pinning him down on the ground and pouring booze into his mouth because, no, you're going to be like us. And I can't change that for him. But believers can walk with them in the midst of all of that and realize that when other people see us doing that, it's going to be costly for us to do that. It was for Paul and Silas. It says, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews. And are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. Remember I said the significance of this being a Roman colony? All of a sudden, this is an ethnic issue. This is a racial issue. Do we think anything is new under the sun? Really? Like, man, we live in this weird day. And the people that lived through the bubonic plague are kind of going like, uh, we, we've done this before, right? And the people in, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, racial injustice. This is so, this is new. This is for, no, it, it's still here. And the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods publicly. This is how Rome dealt with Outsiders, people that would not uh, conform. They wanted to make sure the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, comes at the cost of non-Romans getting smashed into the ground. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. This is a sham of a, of a uh, sentencing. There, there's, no, uh, there, there's no judge, there's no jury, there's no, let me share my, at no point in time in this do Paul and Silas ever get to say, hey, this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is what we've, you know, this is what we've done, this is, you know, this is what we're about. It's just, they're, they're, the crowd is loud, 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 angry, 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 robes are stripped off, they're all beaten, uh, they're, drug into the inner courts or into the prison cell and handed off to the last person, the Roman jailer, who was given the command to guard them securely. That's a pretty specific thing. Just make a keep a close eye on them. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison. And fasten their feet in stocks. I'm pretty sure this is not, sirs, this is where you're, you know, this is your accommodations here. Here's the TV remote channel. Would you like something to drink? And it, this is, they've been beaten up and they are drug in, thrown into a dirt cell and their feet are put up into stocks. And the only thing comfortable to do is lay on your back if you're in that situation Oh, and your back was just beaten by rods, so it's welted and bleeding, and there's nothing good about this. Why did he do that? Because he was a Roman jailer. It was a prominent position. He was probably a retired uh, Roman, Roman legionnaire. He was ethnically Roman, politically Roman. He had all the power, and here were these Jews. They're just coming in here, messing things up, watering things down, confusing people. I've got every right to treat them however I want to treat them. And so he fastens, he begins to torture them. Angry, hateful, vengeful, racist. That's what he is. Nobody here knows any racists, right? That's racist, racism's done. We're done with that. It's not a problem anymore. 
How many know that racists need Jesus too, regardless of what color their skin is? But about midnight, Paul and Silas, as they're in that inner place with their feet up in the stocks and their aching backs on that dirt floor, man, they're just whining and moaning and complaining and, oh wait, no, that's not what it says. And they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. I mean, in an incredibly bad situation, what are they doing? Praying, God, you're so good. You're so good. Help us to keep up this good fight. And singing hymns of praise to God. Praise that they were found worthy to suffer in the way that Jesus did. Prayers for their sister Lydia that's outside of that, that she would be encouraged in her faith. That's amazing to me, right? That they would be in such a hard situation that they would be praying and singing hymns of praise to God. But that's actually not what blows my mind in this passage. It's the next statement. And the other prisoners were listening to them. That amazes me because it begins with saying, and about midnight. You guys ever been at, a, at a, an overnight event and somebody at midnight just starts singing? And you're just kind of like, um, hush, right? But they're listening. What that tells me is that they were singing well. This year, we're going to find opportunities to have, oh, poor, pitiful me. I can guarantee it. I can guarantee it. And here's the reality of it. Everybody around you, they have the same right to be singing the same, oh, poor, pitiful me song. So the question is, is the song that you're singing worth listening to? Because they are listening. Church, they are listening. The world is not ignorant to how you are living your life. They do see it. And they're going to value what you value based upon how you value it. Shell and I have been having a number of conversations about the, the nature of this coming year. About what are we going to do to fight being negative? What are we going to do to, to make sure that in our conversations we don't just go down the toilet bowl of negativity? Because the reality is, regardless of if people have faith in Jesus or not, there's still going to be hard things. All the other prisoners were listening. In verse 26, And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison house was shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everybody's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Earthquake happens. Prison bars shake loose. Chains fall off of feet, not just of Paul and Silas, but of every prisoner in there. I mean, there's other times in the Scriptures where an earthquake happens and the prison doors open and Peter's let out. He's, he's able to escape. I mean, if you find yourself in a situation where it's so hard, this is so hard, I don't want to be here, right? How do you know? How do you know when the, the proverbial prison door opens and you've got a way out? How do you know if this is God saying, hey, you can get out, you're free? Or how do you, like Paul, know, stay put? This prison guard when he woke up after the earthquake, saw the prison doors open, I mean, any sane prison guard would go, they're all gone. And in his uh, situation, they're my responsibility. If they escape, I'm dead. I have no hope. My first reaction is to kill myself. This is a family man. This guy has a family. And that's his first response. True racism, I think, has a basis in hopelessness of heart. It has this false pretense of superiority with others, and ultimately when we find out that our ethnicity is not our true identity, uh, all of a sudden there's this 
chasm of hopelessness that exists on the inside of it. That our political leaning, our uh, geographic location in the world, any of these kind of things that make us feel superior to any other person, ultimately has no foundation to it. And it's hopeless. And what an opportunity that Paul could have been like, you know what, this guy tortured me. I'll just stand and watch. Some people like to watch the world burn. But he didn't do that. Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself. Loud voice. Stop. And then here's the other crazy part. We are all here. Wait, you mean all the other prisoners that were not in there because of their love for Jesus? They're still there? Their chains fell off. Their doors opened up. Their way out was, why didn't they leave? I think Paul and Silas' song was pretty good. And I think they wanted to hear the second verse. The transformation that took place, not only in the prisoners' lives, but in the prison guards' life, came about because believers suffered well. They went through hard things well in an undeniable way. In verse 29, and calling for lights, rushing in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul, Paul, Paul and Silas. And after he had brought them out, remember he threw them in, he brought them out and he said, and I love this, sirs, what a change of an angry heart. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Guess who else was listening to Paul and Silas's songs? Guess who else was listening to Paul and Silas's prayers? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him uh, together with all who were in his house. They shared the gospel with these people who only hours before had been their dark enemies. And he took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized. He and all of his household, they all committed their lives to follow the Lord. They believed this truth and he brought them into his house and set before them food and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. What an incredible transformation. What an incredible change. His, immediately, his immediate response to becoming a believer was to serve. This angry person. Now before we think that that's strange, what was Lydia's first response? This religious, spiritual person. She prevailed upon them to let them serve her. I mean, for, for her to serve them. The message of the gospel changes the Christian heart to where we see that our obligation is to live in service to our king. It changes the way that we live. Now, so this is all in the middle of the night, right? I mean, literally it began at midnight. This probably all wraps up at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Now, when day had come, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. They've... You know, they've, we, we want to get rid of this thing quietly. We want to get rid, you know, we've, we've showed everybody this is how, this is how this, these crazies, this is how we deal with them. And the jailer reported these words saying, the chief magistrates have sent, to you, sent you to release. Therefore, come now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans. And have thrown us into prison. And now they intend to send us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. You see, none of this should have happened. Why? Because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And you don't do this to Roman citizens. In fact, the law says you don't do this to Roman citizens. And the magistrates knew my head's on the chopping block now. Paul and Silas literally had a get-out-of-jail-free card in their back pocket. 
Why didn't they ever pull it? I mean, honestly, if, if you and I are, are into a situation where you're like, okay, if I take one more step, or I mean, this is hot water, and I know I've got a phone call I can make, this all goes away, and I'm in, I'm in, you know, I'm in good shape. Most of us are going to go, absolutely, of course I'm going to make that phone call. I'm going to get out of this thing. I don't want to get beat. I don't want to get thrown in prison. I don't want to get humiliated. I don't want any of that kind of stuff. So I'm going to make that call, and I'm going to get out of the car. Why did Paul and Silas not throw the card? What did I say about the village of the Roman colony of Philippi? The vast majority of residents of Philippi were not Roman citizens. Do you know what Paul and Silas just did? They said, yep, I got rights. I got all the rights. And I'm not exercising any of them for the sake of the gospel. Boy, what a different thing that is. In fact, when Paul writes back to the church in Philippi and the letter to the church of Philippi, he says, hey, I've heard that some of you are suffering the way that I did. So have this same mind in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God... I mean, you think your Roman citizenship is good. You think your American citizenship is good. This dude was God. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But he humbled himself as a servant. And being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to the point of death. And not just simply death, but death on a cross. And so Paul was saying, what was I doing with you? I was just modeling what Jesus did. Yeah, he had rights. He had all the rights. Jesus had every right. to. That's why Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know? Don't you know I own the kingdom of heaven? I'll call down all the angels. He'll smush every one of these guys. I have all the rights. But the sake of the gospel is far better. No, indeed, he says, let them come now and bring themselves out. And the police reported that the words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that these were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. Oh, what a different tone this is. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Please make this go away. And when they went out of the prison, they entered the house of Lydia. And when they had saw the brethren, they encouraged them. And they departed. Paul and Silas' greatest joy, aside from the gospel of Jesus Christ, was the church. It was one of those things that I, I, I had to grow into in my Christian life. I didn't have a great theology of church. Church was the event. Church was the, the thing. It was the structure. It was the building, right? And a lot of it was boring. A lot of it was rote. A lot of it was confining. It wasn't until much later that I actually realized that the church was the actual people. When Jesus comes back for his church, he's not coming back for two-by-fours. He's not coming back for programs. He's not coming back for budgets. He's coming back for us. And if that's what Jesus cares about, then that's what I want to care about. And so Paul and Silas, as they were engaging in the, in the, uh, the business of sharing the gospel with people who did not know it, they were doing it from the context of fellowship with other believers. So much so that when they got out of prison... They were like, heck no, I ain't leaving town. I got to see my family first. I need to go encourage them. So as you encounter Lydia's slave girls and angry, hateful, vengeful jailers, remember, that became the foundation of that church. What an incredible, multi-ethnic, diverse group. Blue-collar, ex-hateful jailer, 
young teen girl and an Asian fashionista and some prisoners and their households. We don't look alike. Look around at this group and go, we don't look alike. I mean, if you're siblings, you do, but you know, we got a couple sibling units in here. But we got ethnic diversity, we've got age diversity, we've got geographic diversity, accent diversity. We got some people from Louisiana, you know. I was told I needed subtitles when I got up here with South Louisiana language. And yet, the gospel of Jesus Christ meets every one of us right where we are, changes our hearts, and draws us together. So in the push to say we desire to see the heart of the village change, don't forget the fact that you have a family that should not only exist for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It exists when you're having Bible study when you're having coffee, when you're having a meal together, when you're out snow machining, when you're getting firewood, when you're going fishing, when you're going for a run, when you're cheering at a basketball game, when you're attending a city council meeting, when you're stopping in at the clinic, this is when church happens. And as long as God has you here, because I have, I've been here long enough to know uh, that we are a transient church. That when the time comes for you to get up and go, that you would be able to go to the house of your brother and sister here, encourage them, and then be sent on the next mission that God has for you wherever it is. This is how we're going to win the heart of the city. By loving people with the gospel and being the church together. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly thankful for the the story of Philippi. Because I believe it is the story of us. Or at least it's what we pray for. That God, in, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, our lives have been changed. And the people that you bring us into contact with, their lives can be changed not conform to some image that is not of you, but conform to the image of your son, the firstborn amongst your family. So help us, God, to see the Lydia's and the slave girls and the jailers that live next to us and work with us. And help us to be bold in how we share the love of Jesus with them. Empower us by your spirit. Give us the words to say. Encourage us to see them not just as community members, but as people that we desperately love because you love them first. And in every aspect of our life, point them to you. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.